Hi, I'm Salim Reshamwala, host of a podcast called Far Flung from TED. In each episode, I'll take you to a new place across the globe to get lost in a new vibe and tap into surprising ideas. From tiny suspension bridges in the mountains of Nepal to journalists who've taken the city buses to deliver the news in Caracas. Let's tap into what the world is thinking on Far Flung. Stay tuned after this episode to hear the trailer. The sections of my book that are the most personal and heartfelt and wrenching and difficult were the ones that I was most concerned about when it came to how the book would be received. And of course, without fail, these are the sections of the book that people have responded to most strongly. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, novelist Brad Listy talks about his approach to writing. Isn't this what we're all hungry for, is for somebody to drop the mask and really say what's on their heart and on their mind? Brad Listy's many gifts, one of them is a gift for titles. He is the founding editor of an online literary magazine called The Nervous Breakdown. His first novel, a Los Angeles Times bestseller, is called Attention, Deficit, Disorder, with periods separating each word. His podcast, where for over a decade he has been doing fascinating, in-depth interviews with a wide variety of writers, is called other people podcast he joins me today to talk about his podcast and his books especially his latest a work of autofiction with another great title be brief and tell them everything brad listy welcome to design matters thank you so much i'm glad to be here brad i understand you're quite the grateful deadhead i grew up on that music and it was significant to me in my late adolescence in the Midwest. And I often describe the experience of going to my first Dead show as kind of like the aliens landed. I was in India, I was in suburban Indianapolis. Nothing happened there. <laughs> and I guess I was living a pretty insulated life as a kid. And so it was a kind of revelation. All these freaks were there. And it sort of terrified me, but I was drawn to it, and it was kind of exactly what I wanted at that age. I mean, I could spend an entire hour trying to defend my position on this because I feel like the dead get a lot of shit. Oh, like no, 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 not for me. I We had a lot of similar overlapping college experiences around the Grateful Dead, if you know what I mean. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Sure, and, yeah. <laughs> life-changing, revelatory, sometimes hallucinatory. Um, and so, no, I am a big Grateful Dead fan and was really, really happy to see that you were too and have spent many an hour at Grateful Dead concerts and listening to music. Just one last question about the Grateful Dead, because for those listeners that might not be into the Grateful Dead, although, my God, what they're missing. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> what, what is your favorite album? Oh, God. I would probably say... The Europe 72 live albums. I've probably listened to those the most, but I listened to so many bootlegs. Yeah. Uh, like live recordings. That's sort of where it's at with them. 
but yeah, I think there are there are artistic heroes for me beyond just being musical heroes. I love the the way they did it and the way they built their community and the visual iconography of it and the way that it inspired so many people to start their own creative projects and the way it sort of created this community that uh, sustained itself through like trade and bartering <laughs> on the road and allowed people to live this kind of gypsy life outside of conventional reality almost. That's very cool to me. I mean, that's what a rock band is supposed to do at its very best in my book, I think. Brad, you were born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I understand the first thing you did in the moments after being born was pee in your doctor's face. <laughs> this is and, what I'm told. I have no memory yeah, of this. Yeah, but I was this actually is the... curious about that. But <laughs> you've written that your mom saw it as an act of defiance, but you've posited that you were just terrified, lost bladder control in front of strangers and was uncontrollably weeping. <laughs> And I kind of love the range in perspective here. Well, listen, it's easy to take that story and tell it at parties as a kind of joke, you know, which I think I've probably done where it's like, you know, this was my first statement on earth. You know, they, they brought me out of the shoot and they were like, welcome to life. And I, you know, <laughs> peed in the doctor's face. But the truth is that I was terrified most likely as a little tiny infant child. And, you know, I'm being uh, yanked out of the womb and... That was my response. So <laughs> there's something funny about that. Brad, your parents were Southerners. They were transplanted to the North because of your dad's job. And you've written that they were nurturing to an almost ridiculous degree and have said that you learned this from your childhood, a basic sense of morality, a predisposition to favor the underdog in pretty much any human conflict. And beyond matters of scripture, there was this simple example of your parents' devotional commitment, a form of discipline not entirely dissimilar to that which I've tried with moderate success to emulate in my writing life. When, yeah. when did you first realize you wanted to be a writer? You know, I think... I was told I was good at it from a young age. And I think I kind of had some natural proclivity. I think when people are creative, they gravitate towards these things. Kids, I see it in my own children, you know, they gravitate towards creative projects and they get enthusiastic about it and they seem to have some gift for it. But over and over again, in conversations that I've had with writers, I hear repeatedly that they had a teacher who told them they were good at it. <laughs> and I think that makes a lot of sense. I also think it's sort of funny how we as human beings need people to tell us what we're good at and we so believe them. Like mm -hmm. this has shaped my entire life. You know, like somebody was like, you know what? You really should be a writer. You should write books. My dad, speaking of nurturing to a ridiculous degree, like when my sisters and I were growing up as we got towards the end of high school, he like brought someone to the house who administered the Myers-Briggs personality indicator test to us because <laughs> he was like, you know, we're going to help you as you go into your college years, have a greater sense of what your strengths and weaknesses are and all this kind of stuff. And I remember taking that test. And then I think I went in after it was administered and had an individual one-on-one -on -one where the guy kind of went through the results. And I distinctly remember him being like, oh, so Mr. Steven Spielberg, that's what he said to me. Wow. Like, you're going to make movies. You know, he was just kind of selling me a little bit huckstery maybe, but I went to college and majored in film. Yes. 
I was so impressionable. I was not one of these people who had like a completely clear sense of who I was or what I was going to do. And I think I needed that kind of encouragement and guidance. And I say that, and I also don't think that it was very far off the mark. I probably would have wound up doing something like this anyway. Might have maybe taken me a little bit longer. But yeah, I feel like that's the experience. It's teachers telling me, parents telling me, getting some positive feedback on little projects I did. And then here we are all these years later. Well, I find it so interesting because you have also written about how if you are any kind of writer at all, it is almost certainly attributable to your Catholic upbringing and complete inability from an early age to feel at home inside the church. And you've gone on to state that everything you've ever written or podcasted has on some level been a response to this failure. And I was really, really fascinated by how so. Well, I mean, I think that's one way of looking at it. Uh, And I think it's the kindest way that I could put it rather than just coming out and saying like, this never made sense to me, like religion is bullshit, (laughs) which I think I felt at various turns in my life, especially maybe in my adolescence and early adulthood. But the truth is that from a very young age, I was being taken to church on Sundays and going to CCD as one does in their Catholic youth. And I felt very uncomfortable and it wasn't making sense to me and I wasn't getting question, you know, questions answered that I was asking. And I've, you know, I've told this story many times, but as a kid, I would be sitting in church and I would be like, okay, God, <laughs> if you're there, like just shoot a purple beam of light through that skylight, like really quickly. Like I was asking for these little supernatural favors just so I could get some confirmation. Yeah. And nothing would happen. And then I'd be like, what kind of God wouldn't like help a kid out? You know, it just seemed like completely nonsensical to me. And I think in in hindsight, I'm just not wired for it. And I also think I did not have the right kind of teacher. I think if I might have had like a curmudgeonly Jesuit who would have embraced me in my doubt and helped me along in a way that was less maybe doctrinaire, it could have stuck better. But I was kind of an outlier and I still am an outlier in my family in that sense, though we're not like a super religious family. It's just that my parents are from the South and I think culturally, if you've ever spent time down there, it's the air that you breathe. It's very, very normal to go to church on Sunday. It's part of the social fabric and I didn't grow up in the South, so that made me an outlier too. I think I'm just a person that has to learn the hard way and I'm a person who has to learn on his own. And I'm never going to be able to accept religious dogma without a lot of doubt and a lot of questioning. Where I ultimately landed was with uh, Buddhism. Mm. If I had to pick one, I mean, I'm also not going to Buddhist temples on Sundays or Saturdays or whenever it happens. I do all of this on my own through books and seated meditation. It's something that's important to me, this sort of spiritual exploration, but it's something that I have to do on terms that work for me. I can't fake it and I can't do it to indulge somebody else's preferences. When you're a kid and you're sort of getting in trouble for not wanting to go to church and then you're dealing with all of the moral constructs that Catholicism or any religion tends to offer, it can give you a, a sense of having failed. You had 
a lot to reckon with as you were growing up. I'm going to talk about some sensitive subjects now. Um, In the fall of your senior year of high school, one of your closest friends lost his older brother, Billy, to brain cancer, and he was 20 years old. And you've written about how you and your friends bore witness to Billy in his final days, delirious from chemo, fighting like hell to stay alive. And you've said that the cruelty of his loss scared you terribly and put you in something of a nihilistic mood just as you were all turning 18 years old. How has that impacted the trajectory of your life? Well, hugely. And in the book, it's fictionalized slightly, uh, though my buddy Timmy did lose his older brother to cancer. And this was just a few years after he lost his father in an absolutely freak accident in Indianapolis where an Air Force jet was flying like a test run and had engine failure. And the pilot ejected from the plane because it was going down and the plane ghost rode into a hotel where his dad was making a payphone call he was a salesman oh my god and this was just a couple of blocks from where my dad worked so the cockpit of the plane landed in my dad's parking lot and they all rushed outside when they heard the boom and it was my buddy's dad we were in seventh grade at the time that was maybe one of the first unexpected tragic deaths I think that was the first one and then i want to say my sophomore year of of high school there was the loss of uh, an old friend from when i lived in milwaukee his younger brother died of a he was like nine or ten i think of a kind of a freak infection it was like sepsis or whatever it was you know like a flu you know it was just like a virus came in and in a matter of a, a couple of days he died and then within that same week one of my neighbors on my little cul-de-sac in Indiana, she got home from school in the afternoon and went inside and found her mom, who was in her 40s, dead of a freak heart attack. It was in the same week. Ooh. So I was just like, you know, people were dropping all around me. It was very hard for me to comprehend, you know, at that age. And then also you take into consideration my spiritual confusion. Then my buddy, Timmy's brother, gets diagnosed with lymphoma. And, you know, we watched him deteriorate and die as we were basically turning 18 and it was really tough it was quite an experience to be that age and to be with him when he was so close to the end and how like cancer is really brutal you know it can really do a number on you physically and so yeah you know kind of haunting experiences and just too much too much for the family to lose their dad they had there were four boys and then the mother then loses you know her eldest son just a few years later, it was like a double whammy and just utterly cruel, you know, an utterly cruel turn of fate. And that's always hard to comprehend. And then while you were in college, one of your closest friends took his own life. Yes. How were you able to manage this level of grief at that stage of your pretty young life? Not easily or well. And, you know, you asked me how it changed my life. And I think the high school experiences probably made me angry in ways that I didn't fully understand, cynical in ways that I didn't fully understand. But also there was a lot of joy 
and just the the energy of childhood, you know, where you're like, I don't want to deal with all this. I'm young. I've, I'm ready to have fun, you know? And so there was that. And in that spirit, you know, and at that time, generationally and ge- you know, geographically and otherwise, we were doing a lot of drinking. I don't know if it was this way for you, but like, I feel like kids these days don't do nearly the binge drinking that my generation did <laughs> and uh, smoking pot and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, I went off to college and there's that freshman year thing where you're kind of released from your cloistered Midwestern suburb and suddenly I was in Boulder and it was sunny all the time instead of like having like a low gray overhang of like slate gray clouds or whatever and cold rain you know it was just so lovely and the mountains were so shocking to me i'd lived in the flatlands you know it was very festive and overly so i say i think in retrospect and i think with the benefit of hindsight i can see the ways in which i and my cohort it wasn't just me we were medicating ourselves, you know, medicating pain, medicating the confusion of adolescence, not really operating wisely. I didn't have great instruction when it came to uh, substances. And I wish that I would have, because I think I would have responded well. I'm of the just say no generation. And as you know, so, and just say no was kind of a blanket dictate. It was just say no to everything, any kind of drug, <laughs> except for alcohol and cigarettes, of course, you know, when you became, when you came of age, which are probably two of the worst, you know? And once I realized that pot was relatively benign and I just like laughed a lot and ate cereal with my bare hands, I was like, <laughs> well, these people lied to me, mm. you know? I'm like, these people don't know what they're talking about. All this has been a bunch of bullshit. I'm going to try everything and find out for myself. So here again, we have you know, young Brad Listy trying to kind of go his own road and find things out on his own. And you learn some hard lessons that way in terms of what, say, an ecstasy hangover feels like, (laughs) which I I don't recommend. And I had a very intense period in the early part of my college existence, like the first year and a half, essentially, where I was just wide open. And it was kind of lovely. You know, it it was not something that I, it's not something that I look back on with, uniform regret I'm, i kind of have some nostalgia for it even it was it was a lot of fun but it was too much and it sort of crescendoed with the suicide of a friend of mine right after we had done a semester abroad that was a true pivot point in a way that i think these earlier deaths were not i think at that point like something snapped i was uh, so shocked by it I was a little bit older and I felt a real sense of responsibility as one does when someone close to you takes their own life, but I hadn't seen it coming. And then yet I worried that maybe I had, which I think again is common with these kinds of losses. It's a very particular kind of grief because it comes with so many questions. It's very haunting to think of how thin the membrane is between life and death. And when somebody crosses through by their own hand, who you know, and who you were just skiing with the other day, that's what happened. I mean, I'd just seen him. You know, we got back from our semester abroad. I was in such a rush to see all my friends and share all the quote unquote wisdom I had gained. (laughs) You know, I was probably the most annoying 19 year old on earth. You know, I'd just gone abroad for the first time and thought I knew everything. And we came back and we were in Boulder and, you know, the semester had ended. So we went up and went skiing and I had no sense you know, just no sense. So I was blindsided by it and traumatized by it. 
I see now with the benefit of hindsight. That was when I got serious about my education, as I write about in the book. And that was when I started to try to reckon with how to deal with my suffering and how to deal with the spiritual problem, if that's a way of putting it, of being alive as a human being on earth. And, you know, I'm fumbling my way forward still, but it definitely changed my life. After your experience at the University of of Colorado in in Boulder, you went on to get your MFA at the University of Southern California, where you took a fiction seminar with Hubert Selby Jr., the author of Last Exit to Brooklyn and Requiem for a Dream, both amazing, amazing books. And you called the experience several other wonderfully profane meditations on the American underworld. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and so I'm wondering if you, if you can talk a little bit about what that was like. Well, for me at that stage of my life, where I knew that I wanted to try to write books, but I didn't really know how, and I'd never really had a creative community, uh, especially one that was centered on literature, to be in the presence of Hubert Selby Jr., or Cubby, as he was known, was to be in the presence of somebody who had done it. That was very powerful for me. Just to be around, I was like, okay, this is the guy who's walked the walk. This is the guy who, he's now towards the end of his life, he's written all these books. One of them got made into a cool movie. I, you know, it was just like, he had kind of lived my dream, but he was also a very poignant figure, in particular at that stage, because... He was in poor health. You know, he would, he passed away, uh, I think a year after I took that class with him. He had always had pulmonary, uh, or, you know, for a long time had dealt with pulmonary health issues dating back to when I think he had tuberculosis in the merchant marine, if I'm remembering correctly. And so he would come into class with oxygen tubes in his nose, wheeling a tank behind him. And yet he was very funny. He was sharp as a tack. He got every joke. He was exactly what I hope to be like when I'm a, an older man, you know. And it was also he was also very open about the struggles that he had had. And in particular, he was open about it in his writing. And I had seen him read his writing. And if anybody ever saw Cubby Selby read, they would remember it because he was an extraordinary performer of his work. Like, unbelievable emotion that he would convey. And he had this... I, I always describe his voice as like kind of like Muppet-like, but with a Brooklyn accent. <laughs> uh, he had this very, you know, kind of, uh, I can't do it, but it was very distinct. And to be around him, that alone was revelatory to me and, and kind of felt like a relief. It was like, okay, so now here I am uh, with, I'm this close to it, you know. <laughs> he said something about being a frustrated preacher to me that resonated in the sense that I think he and I shared spiritual frustration <laughs> and also a spiritual interest and wanted to try to say our peace. And as I say in the book, like articulate our confusion and our doubts. Hearing it put that way and hearing it come from his mouth meant a lot. And I've never forgotten it. What were you planning to do after you got your MFA? What was your intention at that time. <laughs> it's so funny. My understanding of the world of publishing was so antiquated and I had no 
innate business sense. I thought it was like 1926 and that I was going to go to New York and have like drinks at a bar with an agent and the agent was going to sell my book for lots of money and I was going to live abroad. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like I had this fantasy in my head based on books that I had read, many of which were older and had come from a time when the culture was entirely different. But I was dogged. I, you know, I kind of got all my coursework done for my MFA a semester early and then spent that last semester trying to find an agent, which I was able to do. She's still my agent to this day. But I mean, <laughs> Debbie, like I bought a bad suit. I thought you wore a suit. My parents who have no background in the arts, my dad's a businessman. He was like, you're going to New York, you're going to need a suit. <laughs> so here I am traipsing around Manhattan for the first time in my life by myself in a bad suit, like a bad blazer. It was like herringbone pad. I mean, it was really bad. And I remember distinctly walking into some of these meetings with literary agents and them looking at me like, who the fuck is this guy? The fuller price man. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, what are you going to sell me insurance? Like I was like, supposed to, I was supposed to be in a t-shirt. I'm a creative, but like, again, I am so impressionable. I've been this way since I was little. I will listen to you if you tell me things and maybe to a fault. And, uh, I was, you know, walking around town dressed like, I don't know what, trying to introduce myself. I thought you needed to meet people in person, which I don't think was maybe the worst idea. Uh, you know, I think a lot of it's done over the internet these days, but I kind of wanted to look at somebody before I went into business with them. And so I went out and got an agent and it took us a while, but we sold that book. But, you know, you learn pretty quickly in contemporary literary publishing that it's very difficult to make your way financially unless you get very lucky or have some sort of extraordinary talent that just, you know, rises above and uh or maybe some combination and so you know that began my long struggle <laughs> <laughs> well your first book attention period deficit period disorder period was published in 2006 it was actually a los angeles times bestseller so i mean that's a really cool thing you can have forever on your resume yeah um, yeah i mean you know it's like it's so hard to get a book published yeah Oh, yeah. I, I, I mean, it's hard to write one. You know what I'm saying? So, like, there's all these things and that all these steps along the way that you have to sort of get over. You got to finish the manuscript. You then got to find an agent. That's not easy. Uh, then you've got to go out and deal with the rejection of, you know, the many rejections that will almost inevitably come trying to find a publisher. And none of it is simple. Then you have to deal with the thing coming out and the culture not caring in the way that it used to or not feeling like it cares at all. Like there's a, a kind of uh, disequilibrium that I think can sometimes hit an author, especially a young author, where the book comes out and there's pub day and it's so exciting. And yet your editor might not even call you. <laughs> you know, that happens. You know, I remember my agent sending me flowers and I was like, oh, and I like held the vase and it meant something to me because I was like, somebody's acknowledging that this happened. And then I remember going into the bookstore to like visit my book, you know, to see it in the store for that debut was a big deal. And then subsequently, and maybe a little bit pathetically, I would revisit my book in the bookstore to check in on it as if I were like visiting a patient at the hospital. <laughs> I think that's really wonderful. I think that's really charming. <laughs> 
you simultaneously or nearly simultaneously launched your online magazine, The Nervous Breakdown, in 2006 as well. You you originally launched it on MySpace, <laughs> which I love. <laughs> Anybody out there remember MySpace? Um, and it was really an outgrowth of the work you were doing to promote your novel. So, so talk about the motivation for doing that, why you went to MySpace, why the name The Nervous Breakdown. Talk a little bit about the origin story of, of this whole aspect of your life now. You know, I think it was right at the dawn of social media. Again, I had, you know, I had my agent call me up and say, hey, there's this thing called MySpace. I think you should look into it in advance of publication. Uh, a lot of musicians are using it, but some authors are onboarding now. So I set up a MySpace music account for me and my novel. And I just started blogging daily. And people started to show up and comment and interact with me. And I started to get hit with that dopamine, you know, which was a new experience. I felt like I was building community around my book. And I felt like, wow, I could sell some books this way, which was only somewhat true. You know, you learn these things, but that was kind of a heady experience. It was also a heck of a lot of work. And it was also a great way for a writer to burn himself out and to burn up all of his creative energy on a daily blog. I did it for over a year and I was really dedicated to it because I thought it would bear fruit and because I was sort of addicted to the dopamine and because it was fun and it was interesting. As I did this and experienced some success with it, I started to think, wow, the barrier to entry is really low. And what if I joined forces with other writers and we kind of launched our own magazine? Why, why wouldn't we? So I started talking about it to the woman who cut my hair back at that time. It was really this haphazard. And she's like, oh, my sister does some web design. <laughs> she really, <laughs> she really didn't. And then the next thing I knew, I was like sitting at my kitchen table with this young girl who sort of knew how to make a blog online. And then I put up Craigslist ads because I initially conceived of it as being this international thing where there would be expatriated writers around the world kind of reporting from Tokyo and Beijing and Paris and, you know, and I did get some hits. We did have some early contributors in places like France and Spain and New Zealand and Australia. You know, in those early years, it became an incredibly vibrant community. I see now in retrospect, uh, people were posting daily and there would be like three to 500 comments on a post. Remember those great old days? Yeah, I was part I mean, of the Speak Up crew, the first ever design blog and Armin Witt and Bryony Gomez Palacio started that. And oh my God, the glory days of blogging. Yeah. And also really gifted writers who have since gone on to great publication success, including yeah. some who answered my Craigslist ad, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, we were all just kind of getting into the internet really, you know, in a serious way in terms of building a presence, as they say online, you know, having an author website, having a social media presence, all of that was new then. And so I thought maybe I could build it into this thing that became a profit machine with like poetry and like weird personal essays and 
that's really not going to do it most of the time I have since discovered. <laughs> well, it's a it's a labor of love and it's it's evidence of a, a group of people coming together, making something meaningful. I mean, you moved off MySpace. You're now located at thenervousbreakdown.com. You've launched a book club, a live event series, a small press. In 2011, you started the podcast Other People. Um, you've done a lot with with all of this extension into what has always seemed to be the new media at the time. So, so I would say congratulations. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've I've always hustled and been interested in experimenting, and I've always wanted to both make art and say my thing. <laughs> but also uh, serve my community. And I think my, my community is definitely writers and people who are into books and who are into making meaning with books. And I feel like one feeds the other. I don't know if I could write. I mean, maybe I would write more. I've had that thought, but I sort of feel like if I didn't do the podcast and I didn't do the nervous breakdown and these uh, various permutations of it, that I might not have as much juice or something, or I wouldn't feel as good about myself. I like to be interacting with people and helping other people realize their creative visions. And I also feel like in this culture, books, and maybe it's always been this way, but I feel like, especially with digital media and movies and television and all of that stuff, music, it's, you know, you're competing with a lot. It's a very crowded media universe. And it sort of feels to me like book people, or at least some book people need to help create book media and we need to kind of promote ourselves. And there's nobody who is more acutely frustrated with great writers, great writers, not getting the attention they deserve than I am. It drives me absolutely nuts. And I think it's what fuels me. I think it fueled me as I got underway at the nervous breakdown. And it has especially fueled me through the years that I've done the podcast because that really feels like the truth to me. You know, there are people who write masterpieces or close to masterpieces, however you want to define it, but just excellent works of art that only a few hundred people read. That seems insane to me. And I'm trying to rectify it as, as like one little episode at a time, you know? Your podcast has been continuously running for 11 years now. I think you've done close to a thousand interviews. Is that right? Like getting close to 800. So yeah, on that. That's rounding uh, up. Uh, rounding <laughs> up to, yeah, rounding up to a thousand. And uh, it's still shocking to me. <laughs> and And you have interviewed undeniably some of the world's absolute greatest writers. Yes. In my research... I discovered that you've said, despite the podcast's success, despite everything that you've accomplished with this remarkable body of work, you've said the truth is you're genuinely confused about the podcast's function in your life. Yeah. How so? How well, so? <laughs> well, I mean, it's just this thing that I started as, an, as a kind of lark, you know, and I, I truly thought of it as a finite experiment. And... Now I'm here 11 years later, and it's become close to the center of my professional life and something that I probably rely on in ways that I don't even fully understand, you know, like just the degree to which it 
means something to me and sustains me. I'm sure you have a similar feeling. Like to yeah, have- I actually have the same feelings, both, both the positive and the questioning. I'm not going to say negative because I don't think it's negative. I just think the confusion about I never set out to do this. This wasn't my goal as I was growing up. So I totally get it. I'm so interested in what you have to say about this. Yeah. And so I think like, you know, as the episodes pile up and the years go by, and I keep having these conversations with people, it's hard not to feel a little, a little bit odd, you know, as a person who seems to need to have these conversations and then to share them in public. And I guess it, I've often described it as a continuing education for me. And that's a big reason why it's hard to give up because it's like, you get so much from it. And then you also feel a sense of it. Nothing makes me feel better than to get a letter from a listener or even like a tweet, you know, that's just says, wow, this episode knocked me over, or this really helped me. Or, you know, I have been alone working in my hovel in the Yukon territory or somewhere, (laughs) you know, far afield. And I didn't know anything about how to become a writer, but I've listened to this show and it has helped to light the way for me. It's enormously gratifying. And it doesn't even have to be, you know, at some sort of maximum volume in in terms of the number of letters that I get. You can get like one a week even, and it just keeps you going and it makes you feel, makes you feel so good. It also makes you feel like you're not crazy because this is how I feel about it. Nine times out of 10, I'll turn off the recorder after a conversation and I'll just be like, wow, like that was great. I feel good having connected with a person in this way and having had this kind of dialogue and this kind of concentrated, no smartphone um, interaction with a human being where we're really trying to get somewhere and we're really trying to connect and trying to understand each other. Podcasting, the way that blogging sort of became a punchline at a certain point because of how many people had one, I think that's part of it is the low barrier to entry and these things become sort of bastardized in the, in the culture. But I always kind of bristle. I go, this is a really cool medium and it's giving us something that I think we desperately need, you know, this kind of deep dive conversation and this kind of like wide access to so many different subjects and the educational value that it can have. This is the way that I explain it to myself. But I think when you come into something sort of accidentally like this and you didn't really foresee it, it's probably natural to sit around evaluating every once in a while, like, how did this happen? How am I here? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, but absolutely. I, feel, I feel lucky that it did. It's like such a cool thing that I am able to do this and that these incredible world-class authors and artists will come talk to me week after week. How many people can say that? I mean, that's just a, that's a blessing. And so I'm going to keep going. I often joke that I want to go until I'm 90. I think I've done the math and that will put me at 3000 episodes. I don't know if that will happen. It could end tomorrow, right? Anything could end tomorrow. But, you know, I don't have a sense of an ending. But I do sort of like the idea of a podcast accruing power, especially a podcast, over time. Like maybe in a world where pretty much everybody has a podcast, there's something to be said for longevity. <laughs> this is a theory of the case that I have. I and mean, you, you are a testament to that. You've been doing this longer than I have. So... You build that body of work and you also, your listeners come along for the ride with you. I think that a podcast could maybe build and 
in its poignance as it follows a person through their life, like the host through their life, but also their guests. I've had some repeat guests, so we revisit each other at different stages of life. And, you know, I think that's part of my theory of the case at the moment. And I really hope that I'm able to continue. You have talked about how, because you've interviewed 800 of the world's greatest writers and thinkers, how people often ask you some variation of the question, what's the best advice you've gotten from a writer? And it's gotten where you can boil it down to three things. Yeah, I mean, it, you do get this question, you know, you interview a lot of writers, people are like, well, how do you do it? What have you learned? And I try to simplify what I have found is that writers who tend to have the most productive careers and the most success in publication write every day or close to it. They're very disciplined about getting words on the page, which so seems... So that's number one. Yep. That's number one. It seems elemental, and it is. Number two, also elemental, they read. I think this is the place where maybe most authors in this day and age would probably stand to improve not only because they have multiple responsibilities bearing down on them, financial and otherwise, it's, you know, re reading is a big commitment. Uh, it's also, I think, increasingly hard to carve out time for it in the world that we live in, the smartphone, digital screen culture that we live in. But people who have productive writing careers read a lot. You have to have intake if you want output. Uh, and it has to be disciplined in the way that we are often disciplined about getting to the page at 6.30 in the morning or whenever we do it. And then the third thing that I've noticed over the years is that the writers who write without as much thinking about money tend to be the happiest. Uh, and I got, you know, I'm going to put an asterisk next to this because writers should get paid for their work. It's not a bad thing to want to make money in publishing and to want to have a wide readership. But there are just certain realities about literary fiction and nonfiction and poetry, especially, that one has to come to grips with. To write a book that goes on to, especially a book of, let's say, literary fiction, that cuts through and sells three million copies around the world or whatever it is, you know, and makes you a ton of money and makes your name, kind of sets you up, that is the equivalent of winning the Powerball. I, like, I don't even know what the odds would be. It might even be longer odds. You know, you can do the math, but that's what I would compare it to. And so I think sometimes writers can delude themselves, and I'm raising my hand here because I was one of them <laughs> in my early career, who thought that this was a much more common experience than it actually is, and who thought that there was a way to sort of impose my will on it to a degree that there's really not. And I think writers who have a sense of expectation around the work that they do and the kind of reach that it typically has and who set their lives up financially and professionally so that they can accommodate creative work while also making a living and having some kind of stable income just seem to be happiest and sanest. A lot of times it happens in conjunction with an academic job, which seems to be most symbiotic with a creative life because of summers and sabbaticals and uh, you know, not maybe having the most standard nine to five schedule, but it can be other things. That's the the third thing. And it's the one that has the most to do with just like the practical aspects of life and adulting, as they say. I'm 
dying to talk with you about your new book. (laughs) There's so much else to talk to you about. And I have so many other questions that I'm just now skipping over to get to your book um, because I'm just antsy and want to talk about it. Um, Your new book is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. And you start the book with this statement. This book took 12 years to write. It started out as a novel, and then it became a different novel, and then it was another different novel, and then it was an essay collection, and then it was nothing for a while, and then it was a memoir, and then it became a novel again, and now it's whatever this is. (laughs) First of all, I think that's one of the most perfect first lines of a book I've ever read. Like, I sat down, ready to read your book, read that line and was like, okay, I have to put the book down and just like live with this beautiful first line. How long did it take you to write that opening? It's so good. You know, when, I mean, in practice, it probably came out of me pretty quickly, but it took me many years to get to the point where it could. This is usually the case, you know, people say like, oh, I wrote this draft, this book shot out of me in three months. They don't tell you that they spent like six years in the wilderness, you know. (laughs) Torturing. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) Torturing themselves. So the way that I've been describing the book that you've read and the book that's out there now is a work of art that involved a lot of surrender. It's basically me surrendering (laughs) to it uh, after so many years of frustration, so many different failed versions and very frustrating experiences trying to find a way to say what I needed to say and ultimately because of life circumstances, I think I got to a place creatively where I was like, fuck it. I just have to deal with this head on. I have to say what happened as plainly as I can. And autofiction became the right fit. And I think maybe if I had a big picture epiphany about the book that helped me see it through, it was that I understood finally that this was a book about creation and creative exasperation not only artistic creation, but also the creation of family. And these questions around why, why, why do this? Why make art? Why make a family? Why subject yourselves to the risks of love? Um, Mm. You know, as a human being, you know, you kind of put your heart on the line when you decide to have children, especially in this day and age, but you do it as well when you get married or lock into a relationship or put your heart on the line in any number of ways. Likewise, there is something kind of insane about writing books, making art in a world that's so distracted, (laughs) you know, and kind of making this slow food in a world that seems so designed for fast food. And is anybody going to care? And how am I, why am I spending all these years on this? You know, you can start to feel a little bit nuts. And so These were all the kinds of questions that I had and all the kinds of like lived experiences that I was dealing with. And I think what happened was that for this particular narrative, I just finally landed on an approach that was pretty close to the truth that gave me some flexibility as needed to make the experience readable, which is very important, but which finally allowed me to articulate my confusion, as I say, in a way that felt satisfying. I cannot tell you what a relief it was to finally get to the point where I was writing this book and felt like it was coming together after all that time because I didn't know if it would. 
You mentioned the term autofiction, and for our listeners that might not know what that is, can you talk a little bit more about the genre, which seems to be gaining in popularity quite a lot over the last couple of years? Yeah, and I don't know if I'm just sensitive to it because I have a book of autofiction out or if it's uh, something that a lot of people have been noticing, but sort of like podcasting, it's one of these like cultural punching bags. It's like, oh, autofiction. And I bristle at that. I'm like, hey, listen, you know, people writing from their lived experience, which is what autofiction is, it's autobiographical fiction. And then tweaking it a bit for the purposes of narrative and readability or the protection of innocence. You know, sometimes you change details to protect the people who might be implicated. There's nothing wrong with it. And at its best for me as a reader, which is, I think, the point of genesis for me as a writer of autofiction, um, when I'm reading a really good work of autofiction, it comes as a huge relief to me. I respond very strongly to works of art where I can really feel the artist in there grappling and talking to me plainly. This can come in a variety of forms. I think it comes most directly in autofiction and memoir. If I can feel the artist in there and I can feel a sense of personal truth permeating the book and I can get a real sense of the human being inside of the art, it makes a big difference to me. And I think with this in mind, it makes sense that I would be a person who would be interested in talking to people on a podcast. I'm always interested in the artist. And I know some artists go, no, don't be interested in me. <laughs> like it's, the, it's about the art itself. Just enjoy this world that I've built. And I'm like, no, I want to know what's going on with you. And I think we write the kinds of books maybe that we most respond to. For me with this one, autofiction ultimately was the form and it was the only form that it really could take. I, I tried other ways, trust me, and they just didn't work. <laughs> I, I'm very similar in that I like to know everything about somebody that I'm talking with. And as I was reading your book, because I know you know my wife, Roxanne Gay, and she adores you, I keep asking her, did this happen? Is this, is this true? Is this, is this really, did, does, does he have this? Does this? And, you know, she kept giving me the, the answers that I was, I was needing to be able to sort of figure out the narrative in my own way. And you've said that autofiction is, is very natural for you as a writer, but you also really appreciate it as a reader. And I was wondering why. I was wondering, wouldn't you rather, given how curious you are and how interested you are in the details of a person's life, rather know what exactly did happen and to whom, <laughs> as opposed to wondering if, is, is Brad talking about this or is he talking about this or did, is this made up or did this really happen? Yeah. I mean, I think like with autofiction, that's as close to the bone as my book is and as a lot of works in the category are. You usually can tell, you have a pretty good sense of the person giving it to you straight, maybe with some tweaks. And I think I can accept them because usually they're in there, again, just to help the narrative along. Um, what I found in writing and struggling to write this book is that if I delivered it just the facts, it became a little bit suffocating or maybe a lot suffocating and it just didn't work. I, this was just the way that I could make it work. And I wanted it to be as truthful as possible. And sometimes, you know, as the saying goes, we can 
you know, you can be more truthful in fiction than you can in nonfiction. And I don't have a great memory. In some cases, that was the impetus. It was like, I don't even remember, you know, <laughs> in the chaos of life, you know, we have kind of maybe an emotional memory or something of, of, yeah. a, of a moment, but we don't have a clear picture or I don't. I should say too, as you mentioned, Roxanne, that her book Hunger was instructive for me. I remember distinctly reading Hunger as I was struggling along on my way and being like, oh, well, here's how it's done. You go right at mm. it. Like you go <laughs> right at it. And that book is a great example of that. And I knew that I had tough stuff to talk about in my book. I knew that I had to, uh, you know, the phrase that I always go back to is slow down where it hurts, which is a Steve Allman line, you know, which I think is really what you need to do as a writer. It's, it can be counterintuitive because you're sitting there writing and you're like, oh, <laughs> you know, like this is where you just kind of want to gloss over. I'll, I'll be very succinct here, but that's actually where you do need to kind of stretch out a little bit. And it's not the most natural thing in the world to do. And it can be very easy, even for a person who likes to think of himself or herself as an honest broker, it can be easy to trick yourself into thinking you did it and you got it all out there. And it's like, no, we need to, we need to see even more as a reader. And that's where the emotional power and the real human feeling of a book comes through. I can't tell you how many times I've experienced that as a reader without a problem. It's exactly what you want. As a writer, it can be more difficult. And even up to the point of publication for my book, the sections of my book that are the most personal and heartfelt and wrenching and difficult were the ones that I was most concerned about when it came to how the book would be received. And of course, without fail, these are the sections of the book that people have responded to most strongly and will talk about when they write to me or talk to me. Yeah. So well, go figure. <laughs> ordinarily, when I interview a writer about their book, I will talk and ask about specific things in the book. In the case with you, Brad, what I actually really wanted to do was read some short excerpts from the book that I truly loved that I wanted to talk to you about because it didn't feel fair asking you questions about things you've written about in the book without actually sharing little pieces of the book because it's so beautifully written. So you cool with that? I'm cool with it. Please. So the first thing, the first, this is the longest excerpt and, and this is really, I think, my favorite paragraph in the book. And and this is where you're writing about the question of whether or not to write a memoir. So I wanted to start with that one. You write, memoir, but is this true? I can't help but wonder, did I really know? Did this moment actually happen in the way that I recall? Some version of it certainly did, but it's possible and even likely that over time, I've come to embellish it as a way of apprehending the past, giving our history some definition and a sweet cinematic beginning. Because this is what humans do. We tell ourselves nice little stories and believe them as if they were true. But they aren't actually true. At best, they're only kind of true. And the more that a person remembers a thing, scientists say, the less likely it is to be accurate. With each retelling, the essence gets lost, which, if true, leaves me wrestling with a fairly big conundrum. 
If my sense of self is constructed from memories, but the memories are not to be trusted, then how am I supposed to have any kind of clear sense of self? I'm never entirely who I think I am. Also, what the fuck actually happened? And how has all of this time gone by? Yeah. Like, mic drop, Brad. Mic drop. <laughs> I love that paragraph. I mean, the idea of memory, the, the, the sort of thing that I've come to understand about my memories is that some of them are true and some of them are false. <laughs> That's about as far as I've gotten. I have diaries that I have kept from the time I was a, like in the seventh grade until I was about 30. And so those help me reconstruct specific things. I also have a piece of jewelry that I remember getting as a result of this or that thing happening or, or a T-shirt, and that becomes evidence of that experience. But other than that, it's all sort of ad hoc as far as I'm concerned at this point at 60 years old. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy how f it becomes like a fiction, you know, and you tell yourself or I tell myself stories, especially when you're trying to uh, harken back to big moments, you know, the things you're not supposed to forget, like meeting your spouse and how those early days were that big date where the kind of light bulb went on and you knew that it was serious. And, you know, without hopefully going too far afield, I think when I wrestle with this question about sense of self and how slippery and mysterious it is, this is tied to kind of my, like the Buddhist lens that I look at existence through. Mm -hmm. And the Buddhists have quite a lot to say about, you know, not self and how if you start to investigate it, there's really no there there. And it can be very easy. I mean, this is part of the human condition, I think, to invest certain experiences or people or things even with uh, a sense of identity. We do this over and over again and we fool ourselves. <laughs> uh, so I, I think, again, it's just, it's one big aspect of this kind of broader confusion like uh, that I live with openly <laughs> as a human being. And I can't help but tether it to this acute sense of the passage of time. I mean, we all feel this as we advance through middle age, right? It's like, wow, it's really going fast. I wanna sort of hang on to things. I want to have a sense of what's going on. I want to, I want to live well, you know, I want to be good at life. <laughs> then you can find yourself looking back on say that big first date or the birth of a child, some big moment and realizing like, I don't really have it. It's disintegrating. Everything does. Another piece of the book that I loved was how you were struggling, how you articulate struggling to find the narrative arc that you want to take through the book, and then how you begin to understand that you have to write about your shame. Um, and so you, you articulate that here in, in this paragraph. On the flight home, I wrote the following in my notebook. In the end, all art is about the artist's personal struggle, and whenever I get away from this essential fact, I lose interest. I lose the thread, feel phony, go adrift. 
the most critical thing is to tell the truth, even if it's fiction, especially if it's fiction, even though it's impossible to ever do such a thing. You can never tell the full truth, but you try. And this is the project. It's about the attempt. Maybe kids can do it. Adults can't. This is why kids' art is charming. Maybe the only way to do it as an adult is to write something that will never be read. Write your story as honestly as you can. Include every lingering guilt and scalding shame. Share it with no one. And, and you go on to write, the entry ends here in abrupt <laughs> fashion, followed only by the word turbulence written in a wobbly hand a couple of lines below so brad you write out a lot of your shame what you see as shame which i just see as like comrades <laughs> comradeship <Right. laughs> um in in the book how how hard was it to do that maybe not as hard as you might think at that point i think i was surrendered to it and i was you know exhausted in a certain sense and for the period of time that I wrote this book, this final draft, it was a very intense creative experience and the best one that I've ever had. And there was a sense of abandon. There was just a sense of, in a kind of experimental frame of mind, I wanted to try to write it as if I were already dead. And I think in retrospect, that might've been colored by the pandemic because this last draft was written in the, the spring, that spring of 2020 when the pandemic was just coming on board all of our lives and affecting and upending everything. And so maybe there was like this sense of mortal doom or something where it was like, fuck it, like just write it. What do you have to say? And then there's also a part of me, like a pretty strong part of me that thinks like, isn't this what we're supposed to do as storytellers and as writers and as communicators? Isn't this what we're all hungry for is for somebody to drop the mask and really say what's on their heart and on their mind you know, I say that and I'm, I'm sort of on board with it as a reader. I'm like, yes, that's what I kind of want. But I also understand that it's not for everybody. Some people just want to escape into a fantasy world in the books that they read and to have some middle-aged man reckoning with his shame, <laughs> you know, might not be their idea of a, a nice day at the beach. So I will cop to that. But for me in this stage of life and maybe for me temperamentally and spiritually or otherwise, this is what I'm drawn to. And maybe this is what I'm just plainly wired for. Another line in the book that I loved was when you write, the first half of my existence has been spent with only moderate success trying to become someone, and the back half would be spent learning to become no one. Talk a little bit more about what that means. Well, I think it's just having a really acute sense of death, which I want to believe most of us have. I know I'm not alone in this. I think a lot of people are really death obsessed and not in a bad way. I think it's healthy to comprehend your life through that lens. Like it's coming. We are going to die. It could happen today. It could happen tomorrow. It will be the end of this incarnation or the end period, you know, depending on your worldview or your spiritual framework. I am often at odds with cultural values for this reason. It can seem crazy to me. I think it seemed crazy to me in the phase of my life when I was trying to quote unquote become someone, which I'm not entirely divorced from. I mean, we all have to do what we have to do to get by in life. But 
I think maybe the grief experiences that I've lived through, these untimely losses, made me, you know, who I am in a lot of ways and gave me that acute sensitivity and brought to mind all these big existential questions like, what, what's it all for? What are we doing here? I want to try to deeply reckon with my own mortality. And I don't want to use the phrase, I want to die well. A lot of people say that, <laughs> like it's like an accomplishment. It's like, no, you know, like I'm sure it'll be messy and a little terrifying, but I do want to have courage and I do want to look at it because I'm fascinated by it. Uh, it's kind of the ultimate reality to me. And I don't think it has to be this kind of heavy, morbid albatross that you carry around. I think it can actually be a positive, even daily ritual that adds a sense of urgency to your existence and helps to put things in perspective and helps you to relate to the people in your life whom you care about the most at a level of depth that would otherwise not be there. You know, when you have a sense of like, wow, the clock is ticking, what matters most? Who matters most? It's these kinds of things, you know, it's, it's like priority inducing. And so that's the, that's the way that I try to relate to it. And maybe I just have a, a deeper sense of it or a bigger fascination with it than, than most, but I know I'm not alone in it. No, not at all. Um, in thinking about the structure of the book, you stated that it required a lot of failure. And for example, there's a chapter in the book where you talk about a miscarriage, a single miscarriage that you and your wife experienced, even though you experienced multiple miscarriages, I believe five miscarriages, yes. which is just horrific. Um, and you decided that that was too much. I think there was even a, a moment where you felt like the book could have been called, you know, the five miscarriages. Um, <laughs> right. But you've stated that when you go through all that failure, you start to get a more developed sense of the reader. How does that happen? Well, some of it's feedback. Some of it's people in publishing telling you that the book is just too depressing or suffocating, where they're just, you know, they're not sparking to it. I think there's a temptation and a kind of reflexive like a natural reflexive inclination for people who are writing a, I guess a, what you would call it a trauma or a grief narrative to want to just render the experiences accurately and truthfully in full. And I tried that mode. The problem, even though the writing was probably pretty good on a line by line basis is that that's not enough for a book to work. You know, I, I kind of knock myself on this front, uh, you know, it's maybe like a blind spot for me or an area that I could stand to improve is having a more well-developed sense of the reader at the end of the line. If you're writing a book, you're writing for a reader. And sometimes I think you can be like, well, I'm writing this because I need to express myself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Not you know, a good reason. <laughs> no, you have something to say. It's a different, that's a different task. You know, if you want to express yourself, get a diary. You know, you can express yourself all day long. But if you're trying to write a book, you're trying to communicate with somebody. And you have to have a sense of them. And it should be primary. And it took me a while to get there. There are little things about a book that make it more pleasant for a reader things move along. There's not a lot of wasted motion. There's a couple laughs here and there, even in a dark story. There's a sense of real intimacy and risk on the page, which causes people, myself included, to lean in. You know, I always appreciate that. You go, oh, okay, 
so here we go. You know, it's like that sense of somebody really dropping their guard and bringing you in and being willing to say what often goes unsaid. And I hope in subsequent books that the learning curve will not be so steep and will not take me as long. I have one last question from the book and one last excerpt that I want to share. So the question that you ask, you ask a lot of really good questions in the book and they really made me stop and sort of think about how I would answer the, the same questions. And you ask, how much of what we do or don't do in life should we be penalized for? And I'm wondering if you've got an answer to that. You know, this is, I guess, again, through the Buddhist lens, this is a, a karma question. It's a cause and effect question. From this perspective and with this basic understanding, if we do good in the world, if we act skillfully, we're probably going to have consequences that please us uh, and that are not harmful or painful or whatever. Conversely, if we act unskillfully, if we speak unskillfully, I think we've all had this experience, it tends to come back to bite us. I think there's another realm of personal error that I'm really struggling with in life and in the book. And it's in particular, you know, with respect to my son and his disabilities and the decisions that were made along the way in the process of conceiving medical decisions. A person can go through life in good faith and can make errors along the way that cause a lot of pain and the outcomes are very difficult to deal with, not only for you, but for others. And getting to a place of self-forgiveness for that is not easy. And I think that's where the heart of the question lies for me, because it's one thing to be irritable and to kind of snap at somebody or to lose your temper with somebody on a phone call or something, and then to have a friendship fall out for a while or something as a result. You can sort of see the line more clearly in that sense. but. When you're operating in good faith and you just mess up, you're just not thinking enough or you're too busy and you're not concentrating or you're just uninformed or there's somebody who should be giving you advice and you're not getting it. You know, there's a professional failure on the medical end and, but maybe you should have asked for a second opinion or held them to account more. Like these are the kinds of things I grapple with when it comes to having a child with disabilities. I don't know if I have an answer. You know, like, yeah. I think I have some sense of personal responsibility, but I also know that it's not useful to beat myself up for it. Uh, it's not going to serve me. It's not going to serve my kids or my spouse or anybody I know. And so at some point you do have to let it go. And I don't think that means you have to completely absolve yourself and say, I did nothing wrong. You know, you cop to your mistakes, but you have to move forward. And there's like a parable, I think you would call it, in uh, Buddhism about, the, it's called the second arrow. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but like you screw something up or you're dealing with some difficulty and it's like you get shot with an arrow. But then you sit around and you go, oh my God, I screwed up and I did this, that, and the other, and I'm so terrible. And, the, you know, and you start to build this kind of narrative around it and it's like shooting yourself with a second arrow. 
So as much as possible, I'm trying not to shoot myself subsequently with additional arrows. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's the most a person can do. We all make mistakes in life, and some of those mistakes turn out to be more consequential than others. I have a fortune cookie with a similar sentiment that I keep taped to my laptop, which states, avoid compulsively making things worse. <laughs> <laughs> an ideal an ideal outcome if you can manage it you know and we do this you know we we can i know i can beat myself up and i can worry and you know i don't know if you've ever had this experience but i can be out for a walk and i can have an entire argument with somebody in my head that's like <laughs> opera i live in new york i can have an entire <laughs> argument with an actual person <laughs> but i mean that's almost more noble i mean it's like at least in new york it's like you're in somebody's face like i'm just like i'm like i'm supposed to be out hiking and enjoying nature and i just spent the entire ascent of this uh, mountainside you know debating politics with one of my relatives or something and it's like ridiculous you know you just find yourself lost in these kind of phantasms and you know as much as possible i I would like to avoid that. It's about the balancing act between having an honest relationship to your own shortcomings and seeing things clearly, but also understanding that there's only so much within our control and that if you're a person who, I believe, if you're a person who's operating in, broadly speaking, good faith, we have to be forgiving of ourselves and of one another for our foibles. It's just hard, I think, when maybe the consequences affect, like in my case, a child. You know, it's just that that's especially difficult. You don't want ever to bring harm to one of your children. And when you feel like maybe something, some blind spot you had might have caused that to happen, it's, it's a big grief. You know, it's a grief is a theme in my life for whatever yes. reason. This is what I've been dealt. And, you know, it's something that I have to write about and reckon with and uh, live through and hopefully over time gain some insight into uh, it's the most you can do with it right how is your son doing he is doing very well he uh, started walking at age four so i think the hardest years maybe for me so far were the years of like two and three where all of his peers were on their feet and he was still scooting you know he would scoot and he was very uh, enthusiastic about it. I mean, he was moving around faster than you would probably think. But having him up on his feet is a big deal because not everybody with his condition, which is cerebral palsy, not everybody does get up on their feet. Some people with cerebral palsy wind up needing to eat through a feeding tube. There's a pretty big spectrum of outcomes. And so he's walking, his left hand and arm you know, are weaker than his right, but he's hilarious. He's a kid. You know, in so many respects, just a six-year-old who loves Spider-Man and thinks he can shoot webs out of his hands and, you know, all the things that I did at that age too. So we're pretty lucky ultimately. And I have two kids. My daughter is 11. She's, you know, his older sister and kind of his guardian angel. And you, of course, love your children. There's no delineating it. I can't do that. You know, like it's all love. But when you have a child who has pretty serious health issues, the way that I describe it is like, it's a steroidal, <laughs> I use this word a lot lately, steroidal love, you know, it is imbued with grief every day. Every time you look at them, 
is like this combo of just like big love, big grief. And that experience on a regular basis is very intense. It might not be for everybody, but it is, I guess, a big privilege. I, you know, to have that, like, you know, what's the word? Like that emotional baseline. I'm going to every day, I get hit with that. Most people only get hit with that once in a blue moon. That's maybe their good fortune in some ways too. But for me, it's every single day. It's both. And it's powerful. And it's positive, ultimately. It, like your heart breaks every day. <laughs> uh, and I think parents who have children with disabilities or illnesses understand that. I think people who are dealing with a health issue or who have parents who are, you know, at the end of life or something, like we go through phases, but, you know, a parent-child relationship is is its own beast and it's for a lifetime, you know. So that's my existence. I did not expect it, but here we are. <laughs> Well, it probably is and maybe isn't serendipity that the last little excerpt I want to read has to do with these types of emotions. So I'll read this. Emotions, I find, have a way of becoming bearable over time. The feelings, however leveling, are always temporary. But to speak of the darkest aspects of one's trauma to dig down deep and try to get real about it, to bring oneself into direct contact with its heavy and immovable nature, and to then arrive at something resembling insight, all I can tell you is that it's a problem. And where it leaves me, where it seems to leave most anyone who engages with it in a serious way, is in a small, private place of quiet surrender. Which is that, I think... These kinds of tragedies have a tendency to do. They beat you and they beat you and they beat you. And then they put you in a little mental cul-de-sac where words are essentially useless and the powers of logic reach their terminus. And the only thing you can really do is try your best to let go of it all, to relinquish the past and accept what is and get on with the rest of your life. Yeah. That paragraph is about acceptance. And, you know, when you're dealing with something like the disability of a child or a terminal diagnosis or any of these really huge things that come at us in life, that's sort of what you're confronted with. That's certainly how I've experienced it. If you don't accept it, I understand in the early stages, there's going to be some confusion and some denial, all the things that we go through, but you get through those, those phases. And if you don't accept it, then we're shooting ourselves with the second arrow, (laughs) you know, and it's not a peaceful experience, this acceptance. It's not like I accept it. It's a bitter pill. It's hard, but it's necessary in my experience in the absence of some acceptance. And I should say too, that it's also not entirely static. We can revert, you know, Mm -hmm. there are are moments where I still go, oh, you know, and I bristle and I wish, and I just struggle with it. But for the most part, I accept it. And I accept it because I know that it will do a disservice to me and to my kids and to my wife and to my family and friends if I don't. And I also know that too much 
of non-acceptance is insane because this is how things are, whether I like it or not. This is my life. And to sit around wishing that it were not my life, what a profound waste of time and what a profound misallocation of time when in the aggregate and at the end of things, like my children are, these are magical creatures. How did this happen? (laughs) People come out of people. I mean, I know I sound like a college freshman right now, but you know, if you spend too much time in regret or in the past or in wishing that things were other than the way that they are, then you miss the real magic. And I'm desperately want to not do that. So that's what I'm trying my best to manage. And it's imperfect. I think it is for anybody who's coping with something but it took me a while to understand that. I think maybe the way that acceptance is talked about in the culture, we can sometimes think that it's supposed to be accompanied by some profound peace. And maybe there's a little bit of that, but there's also, it's sort of accepting defeat in some ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's accepting that things are not the way you wish they were and that it really hurts and that it's not gonna ever stop hurting to some extent. And you just move forward with it. It's such an important lesson sharing. I mean, it, it's a, I don't want this to sound like a cliche um, because I mean it in the truest sense of, of the words, but it's a way for people to see how to integrate or live with the aspects of life that we sometimes refuse to want to see or deal with. And I think that it's the most beautiful thing you can give someone. Brad, the last thing I want to talk to you about is is about a new project that I read about that you're working on. I don't know if you are still, but especially as we're listening to the January 6th hearings, I, I read that during the days between September 2020 and January 2021, you kept a meticulous diary of both your personal activity as well as a very meticulous log of breaking news stories and tweets. And you're now going back through and unpacking Hacking it all, looking at the news stories, reading through them, pulling quotes, assembling a very rough collage that at last count, I read it was a million and a half words and almost 4,000 pages long. Yeah, it's obnoxious. What are you you planning on doing with this material? I want to make a book of it. I, the impetus for the project was uh, a sense that I had as we kind of careened toward election day, 2020, that it was going to be Rocky, Mm. which, which proved to be uh, a correct instinct. (laughs) And even beyond my, my quote unquote dreams, you know, as a writer of narrative, I mean, the January 6th insurrection is quite an end to act two. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it Mm -hmm. really unfolded to script almost like it was like this, uh, Maybe it shouldn't be that big of a surprise considering who Trump is and his like reality TV instincts and his kind of showmanship and, you know, there's... Buffoonery. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's all there and you could kind of predict it, but I guess when it actually happened, there was still some element of shock to it. And so I had experienced the years of his presidency with a lot of horror and anger and disgust as I think a lot of people did. Not everybody, but I certainly did. I was haunted by how much got washed away and how fast the news cycle moved and how the strategy that Trump seemed to be executing 
which was, in the words of Steve Bannon, to flood the zone with shit, was really working. It was working on the media and the media culture, but it was also working on the population. You know, you can only keep up with so much. It's easy to forget, and it can be manipulated. People's minds can be manipulated. Uh, history can be manipulated if we let it be. I got tired of that, and I want to fix in a work of literature. I think it will be nonfiction, but I'm not entirely sure because I'm too early in it. I want to fix in a work of literature what it was actually like and what actually happened in those crazy days at the end of 2020 and the beginning of 2021. It feels like a vital act of resistance to me. And I think what I learned in the writing of Be Brief and Tell Them Everything is that if I'm going to write a book and sustain the energy necessary to see it through, I have to have a real sense of urgency and a really deeply felt emotional connection to the material. My job now is to take this enormous research document, which is essentially like a collaged timeline, just as you described it, of events as they unfolded, both for me personally and also in the news cycle and on Twitter, which is where a lot of the Trump presidency happened, and to try to distill it into something that will be enjoyable for a reader, edifying, a little bit terrifying, but also hopefully something that can be passed down. I think it's kind of for my kids too, because it's not just the election and the craziness of Trump, it's also the, the pandemic. We were living through some history and my kids, my eldest in particular, old enough to comprehend it a bit, but I do want for them to understand what happened. Uh, we need to tell this story. We need to tell this history openly and honestly. And not just this one, but many of our histories. You know, there seems to be an argument in the culture about whether or not we should tell our darker stories and our more difficult truths. And I come down on the side of emphatically, yes, we should, because it's the only way we're ever going to improve things and to really heal and to move forward in a way that's saner. And so that is the mission that I'm on now. I hope. I can do it. I hope I can wrangle this giant document into something that makes sense to people and that adds some insight. I hope so too, Brad, and I can't wait to read it. Thank you so, so much for making such beautiful work that matters. And thank you, thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. It is an honor to be here. I have so enjoyed it. And I'm enormously grateful to you for the work that you did reading my book, all the research that you always do. I'm deeply grateful to you and just thrilled to be here. Brad Listy's latest book is titled Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. His online magazine is at thenervousbreakdown.com. And you can find his podcast and info about all of his writing at bradlisty.com. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland. Woo! <laughs> <laughs>
What is happening in my mouth? My tongue is fizzing. It feels like pop rocks and lemonade. And now it's salty. And now it feels like I'm eating meat. Yeah. Now I'm tasting cheese. I have no idea what's going on in my mouth. I'm Salim Rashimwala, and coming in June are 10 new episodes of Far Flung. Over the past few years, not many of us have been able to really travel and explore. One of the things that starts to happen is you can lose touch with that weird but wonderful feeling of being changed by new people and cultures. On Far Flung, we recapture some of that vibe. This season, we collaborate with local producers in 10 more locations around the world to understand ideas that flow from those places. You'll journey to very tiny suspension bridges 400 feet up in the air, uniting people living in the mountains of Nepal. It's one thing to see it in papers, read about it, see videos, but it's completely different thing to be there. It just goes on and on and on and on, and it becomes like smaller and smaller and almost disappears in the horizon other side. You'll hear tapes of Somali music that were hidden away, buried underground for years in an attempt to make sure that they are never forgotten. Meet journalists who've taken to city buses to deliver the news behind a cardboard cutout of a television set. And learn about how Iceland is struggling to strike a balance between keeping its language alive while still staying actively engaged with our constantly changing global culture. Sometimes it just comes out a big blur because I'm thinking in one language and speaking in another. It's, it gets kind of confusing sometimes. Come with us and see what the world is dreaming up as we all try to get that feeling of traveling and getting hit by a new idea at the same time. That's all part of a new season of Far Flung with me, Salim Rushmwala. Coming June 9th on Apple Podcasts and June 16th everywhere. Don't, don't.